Governance podcast by the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. I'm Brian Chung. I'm the Assistant Director of this organisation. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Professor Daniel Smith. Daniel Smith is the Director of the Political Economy Research Institute and Professor of Economics in the Jones College of Business at Middle Tennessee State University. His academic research and policy work uses Austrian and public choice economics to analyze private and public governance institutions. Today, we'll be discussing with Daniel, his new book, co-authored with Peter Betke and Alexander Salter, with Cambridge University Press titled Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. Daniel, thanks for joining us on an episode of our podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Perhaps we can start off the discussion by asking you, why did you decide to write a book connecting monetary policy, monetary institutions with the rule of law? What is the problem that you see right now that you're trying to identify and put your finger on? Yeah, so we're looking at the rule of law and its application across a wide range of government programs. And it's something that classical liberals appreciate and have a deep respect for. It's one of the things that drives economic growth and prosperity around the world. And we noticed that the rule of law did not, did not get applied to central banking, which is a real puzzle because sound money is, is one of the most uh, core components of economic freedom and one of the drivers of economic prosperity around the world. And the undermining of sound money has been at the, 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 been the catalyst for some of the worst and most catastrophic events in human history, the fall of the Roman Empire, the French Revolution, Hitler's rise to power, the, the Great Depression, the financial crisis. And it, it's just odd that we never applied the rule of law, especially because if you go back in the academic literature, um, there was a debate among academic economists about money and the rule of law, like should we have rules or discretion? And rules won that debate, hands down. But in practice, discretion won that debate. Um, so essentially, we're looking at a, a, a cent central banking institutions around the world that are largely conducted by unelected and oftentimes unaccountable officials, essentially given complete discretion. So it's, a, it's an epistocracy that does not have democratic justifiability in terms of being connected to the people and driven um, uh, and conducted on their behalf. So rather than money being seen as a, um, as a property right of citizens that needs to be protected and defended, it is oftentimes seen as a prerogative of central banks and all the influences that they receive from major financial players and politicians. So when we discuss the applying the rule of law in the area of monetary policy, what do we mean by this? You know, uh, some people may think of simply inflation targeting. Right, setting a certain rate for policymakers to aim at. But it seems that you are recommending something deeper than that. It's about institutional and constitutional arrangements. right? So, so what do we mean by applying the rule of law in this case? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, certainly inflation targeting could be construed as one rule, but in practice, it's oftentimes been a very weak rule, either one that's informally followed, like at the Federal Reserve, where they're allowed to deviate it from, from it as they saw fit. And they're the ones that decided that they were the ones going to pursue that rule. Um, and there's no punishment mechanism for deviating from that rule or bonuses for hitting it. Um, so what we argue for is a, a, a true monetary rule, not a pseudo rule that isn't actually enforced, a true binding monetary rule 
that actually um, so, uh, constrains what central bankers are allowed to do, um, no matter how heavy the, the political pressure or, or pressure they get from, from big financial institutions, they have a strict rule they have to adhere to, and they're given rewards for following it, and they're punished for deviating from that rule. And that creates generality and predictability in money, which is fundamental, especially during time of a crisis for entrepreneurs out there making all the de uh, decisions, reallocating capital, to have general and predictable money is essential for economic growth and prosperity. I'm just wondering, if we look at the world today, are there certain countries or case studies that you think would be worth emulating? Any maybe uh, experiments with such rules that you think are you know, worth copying? Yeah, so we, we identify three different types of rules that we think fit uh, under this criteria of creating generality and predictability in, in monetary institutions. We don't think the discussion is limited to those three. We just think those are the, the best three at this time. And we don't you know, we don't take a, a side on any of those, um, but those are one to create a, a strictly binding rule like NGDP targeting, uh, which has received a lot of attention in the academic literature and we find very intriguing. Second, and this is from James Buchanan, is to constitutionalize money. So if money is a fundamental right of citizens, then put it in the constitution uh, right next to other rights like the freedom of speech. Um, and that at least protects it uh, gives another layer of protection against uh, uh, from politicians and special interest groups. And the third would be free banking, which is, is the most radical idea. This was the one proposed by F.A. Hayek, would actually be allow um, private banks to issue currency and competition with government or just eliminate uh, central banks altogether and allow money to be, become a, a privately provided commodity. Um, but we, we find those as the three most interesting. We do look at do a survey of um, other uh, types of rules that have been implemented, implemented around the world, such as, such as inflation targeting. And they've even been implemented with punishment mechanisms, like at the, uh, the, the Bank of New Zealand or the European Union, um, there were um, some explicit punishment mechanisms. Thing is that they're, they're rarely, if ever, used. And the other problem with inflation targeting rules is that they've been, whenever they didn't hit those targets, they changed the rules. They changed the range of the inflation target um, to suit the circumstances rather than stick to the rules uh, when it was hard to do the right thing. Um, so, by and large, the rules that central bankers have adopted themselves and tried to enforce themselves have failed. We need a stricter binding rule that comes from a legislative authority um, that really curtails and constrains what central bankers are allowed to do. Thank you. Before we delve deeper into some of these recommendations and prescriptions that you have suggested, I'd like to take a step back and uh, focus a little bit more about the analysis that you conduct in the book itself. Um, and I refer specifically to page 15. I think this is very interesting. You wrote in this uh, page here that readers familiar with mainstream monetary economics and macroeconomics may find our methods and arguments unusual. We will not construct any mathematical models nor test econometrically any hypotheses. Instead, you'll be using simple verbal logic grounded in the economic way of thinking why we believe constrained discretion cannot be adopted by central banks if their goal is economic stability. So perhaps could you share with us what, why do you say that these methods are a bit unusual and why do you think this move is justified you know, in, in your analysis in this book? Well, I think there, there's, there's two things that uh, underline our decision to go that route and why uh, we think that's the best case. One is it's really hard when you're dealing with issues of political philosophy 
to put it into the mainstream preferred methodology, which is technical models. Um, usually they smuggle in some political philosophy somehow as an assumption into those models, or it's underlying it. There's the, you know, the implications of the model is there's some political philosophy notion at play, but the political philosophy isn't brought to the forefront and actually articulated and thus critiqued and, and, and scrutinized uh, as it should be. So what we're doing is we're taking all these underlying assumptions about the proper scope and size of government as it pertains to central banking and bring them out in the open. Say, let's have a let's have an honest debate about the, the political philosophy of central banking. The second is we're looking at, um, you know, underlying concern behind this entire project and why I started up upon it was Mark Pennington's book, Robust Political Economy. And in that book, he argues that we need to design institutions that are robust to knowledge and incentive problems. And we really wanted to take that project and apply it to central banking. So fundamentally, what we want to do is, is, is start from scratch and say, how do we design central banking institutions that are robust to real world knowledge and incentive problems? And on page 16, you really focus on the importance of institutions. And I think this is a really important move that you make because many times when we talk about policies or problems, people look on the surface and they don't delve into the fundamental institutional arrangements surrounding them, right? And you wrote here, our takeaway message is that if monetary economies and macro economies want to make lasting contributions to the quest for economic stability in a self-governing society, they must think constitutionally. Calibrating formal models and studying policy effects econometrically were valuable of secondary importance. Fundamental institutional considerations come first. So I think on this note, you know, do you think, uh, what do you think this says about you know, mainstream economics, the kind of research that we do, and really the importance of looking back to the institutional underpinnings? Yeah, that, and what, what made us think of this is we actually were analyzing the progression of Milton Friedman's ideas on central banking over time. Initially, Milton Friedman was, you know, gung-ho about we just have to get the right people meaning academics in charge of central banks and equip them with right technical models. And Hayek was actually like this uh, beginning of his career as well. You know, let's refine our, our technical models. Let's get better empirical, uh, get, you know, better, better at gathering empirical data and we can improve central banking. But both Nobel laureates by the end of their careers actually switched tunes. They became frustrated that they, they even when they got the right people in position, um, so even Milton Friedman, Arthur Burns, his, his, you know, who he worked closely with, with he wrote a, an op-ed praising it, like, finally, we got a good academic scholar, central banking is now going to be set on the right path. I think it's like only eight months later, he wrote another op-ed saying it didn't matter. They're still doing the same shenanigans that they've been doing. They, they've violated the rule of law, not enacting sound policy. And, and, and it's that frustration that even when you get good academics, such as Ben Bernanke, who's arguably the best person to be at the helm of the Federal Reserve when a financial crisis is occurring. He's a scholar of the Great Depression. He's got good um, practitioner experience in central banking as a governor beforehand. Um, you know, he, he's who you want, the best and brightest from the economics profession, well-intentioned. And yet even he, when it came to the financial crisis, we argue, um, um, undermined the, the rule of law in, in money and, um, uh, enacted policies that we think undermine sound money and made the economy worse off. Um, so it's 
that's that's the frustration that we were struggling with is it's not about getting the right people in position it's not about refining the data that's important to a degree don't get us wrong we're, we're big favorite big fans of that but on the margin uh there's far more return for studying the underlying institutions that drive that behavior and provide the the structure of incentives um and and the flow of information that these actors receive in their roles as central bankers and this brings us to the discussion of robust political economy analysis, right? which uh, we at the uh, Center for Study for Governance and Society care a lot about. And robust political economy really is about evaluating alternative institutions based on whether or not they cope with uh, knowledge and incentive problems. right? So you spend a chapter each in a book discussing these. Perhaps we could go you know, one at a time and firstly talk about the incentive problems. And particularly, I'm curious whether or not this area of monetary policy is more susceptible to these problems than in other policy areas. Yeah, I'd be happy to discuss that. So we break up the, the incentive problems at traditional central banks into to two types of pressures. One is internal pressures, and the second is external pressures. So internal pressures, these are uh, central banks, just like any other government bureaucracy, are bureaucracies, right? They have the same tendencies to, to maximize their budget, self-preservation, inertia, and groupthink. Um, just an example of this, Ben Bernanke, when he was a governor, I believe it was in 2002, at Milton Friedman's 90th birthday, he did an institutional uh, apology on behalf of the Federal Reserve saying, you're right, Milton Friedman, we caused the Great Depression. Thanks to you, we won't do it again. Um, so this was 70 years after the event occurred, you know, after the, the profession had already been won over and realized that, yeah, the Federal Reserve caused the Great Depression and made it more severe and lengthened it, that's how long it took the Federal Reserve to actually admit that, um, which is pretty impressive. And then there's there's other examples that we provide of, of inertia and examples of, um, you know, when central banks are, are the primary employer of monetary economists around the world, that creates a, a huge perverse incentive for the, the profession to, to engage in groupthink. And there's even examples that we offer where central banks, such as the Federal Reserve, have cut people off from attending their conferences or you know, people have been pushed out and examples of suppression of research that was um, critical of the Federal Reserve within the system. But that's not the most important pressure. The more important pressure that uh, is exerted on central banks that we argue is the external pressures. And these, uh, there, there's a couple, uh, debt accommodation, political influence, and special interest groups. So debt accommodation, this is pretty straightforward. Um, when a government uh, issues a lot of debt, it's ne necessarily going to have an impact on um, underlying market conditions. It's going to affect interest rates. So if a central bank simply just want, even if they don't want to accommodate that debt, if they just want to keep markets um, even keel, they have to adjust their policy um, and necessarily support that debt regardless. Um, and we, we saw examples of this under um, in the under the Federal Reserve um, when they switched to a new operating system. And, and I don't want to get too technical, but they switched from a corridor operating system to a floor operating system. And when Trump initiated some fiscal policies, the Federal Reserve measurably had to adjust its policies in order to, to just keep things uh, constant. But certainly other policies under currently under discussion, uh, such as you know um, individual accounts at the Federal Reserve or other central banks to allow direct stimulus would create more pressures on this in this regard. And certainly uh, modern monetary theory would create more pressures in this regard. 
The other pressures, political influence, this includes pressure from the executive branch and leg legislative branch. Um, the executive branch has the power of appointment and the legislative branch, the Senate, at least in the United States, has the appointment to approve those appointments. But there's also pressure beyond that. There's the, the testimonies, there's um, the quid pro quo, quo going, okay, we will, well, we will pursue this economic policy if you don't do this. Um, you know, there's been close relationships we identified, like between Alan Greenspan and Bill Clinton. Um, President Trump getting on Twitter is another example. More modernly, you know, exerting pressure on the central banks to get uh, to get interest rates down. Um, Richard Nixon and his recorded tapes um, with Arthur Burns. He's laughing in the White House in the in the Oval Office, saying, "Yeah, the Federal Reserve is independent, um, but really just get those interest rates down, or else there'll be uh, ramifications." Um, and then the final one is, is special interest group groups. These are major financial institutions like Goldman Sachs that have uh, undue influence on monetary decision-making. And this is due to uh, two factors. One is the re revolving door between these major financial institutions and the treasury and the federal reserve. So it's people that are buddies and friends with each other, uh, rotating back and forth between those positions. The second is, is more practical. It's that when a crisis situation occurs, getting real-time information because of all the uncertainty is, 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 is really hard. So central bankers rely on the key players. They call them up frequently and say, hey, what's going on? But that creates, uh, introduces an avenue of potential bias that allows these major financial institutions to, to you know, to, to, to exaggerate the problem and therefore justify policy that would be more conducive to, to advancing their own interest. And this discussion of incentive problem is interesting because the focus is on the incentive structure of the institutional environment. It is not about how well-intentioned, in a sense, the monetary policymaker is. Right, which means that we can put in place the most well-intentioned individual, yet these institutional constraints will still influence the individual's behavior. Right? Is that the is that the point you're making? Yes, and in, in fact, um, in some research um, independently with Alex Salter uh, that we briefly mentioned in this book, it, we trace out we go through Ben Bernanke, Alan Greenspan's, and Arthur Burns' writings before being at the Federal Reserve and after being at the Federal Reserve, we find a noticeable shift in the policies that they advocate for. So simply switching between the institution of the academy to moving to being a policymaker in a role at a central bank um, caused an institutional shift in their incentives that caused them to, to advocate for different policies. So once again, institutions of fundamental importance in influencing behavior of people in different environments. And perhaps now we can move on to the knowledge problem. You know, what, what is this? And do you think perhaps this is more or less severe than the incentive problem in monetary policy? So I'll actually start with that second part of that question. Um, we viewed the, the knowledge problem as um, enabling the incentive problem. Right. So if there's genuine uncertainty about what you should be doing in the economy as a monetary authority, then that opens the door to be pressured by special interest groups or politicians because you, you honestly don't know what the right thing to do is. Um, and, and we do make the case that uh, um, monetary authorities do suffer from severe knowledge problems. We separate these into two things. One is technical problems. Technical problems make central banking inherently difficult, but not impossible. And then we also argue there are severe knowledge problems that actually make central banking means end inconsistent. 
that you cannot actually achieve the ends of central banking due to these severe knowledge problems. So I'll start with the, the technical problems. These involve um, the setting of objectives, targets, instruments, and calibrating models. So the objectives of monetary policy, uh, we typically assume that you know, they're, they're set in stone. You know, it's, it's maximizing employment subject to long-term price stability. But the thing is, is there, there's a lot more gray area in there, the short-term trade-offs, um, what's the weight that you give to each of these? We have actually statements from Bernanke and Yellen that we go over where they actually place different weights at different times to, to these objectives. Um, and we think there's actually a reason, you know, that central bankers actually prefer to keep these unspecified because that gives them more discretion. And it also allows them to introduce unofficial um, arguments into the equation, such as um, Fed funds rate smoothing, financial stability, exchange rate stabilization, affordability of housing, even climate change and inequality have recently um, entered um, central banking discourse as potential um, uh, goals that they, that they uh, should pursue or at least account for in setting policy. Targets. So the you know traditionally uh, central banks look at the 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 the, the short-term, um, uh, you know, the overnight lending rate um, in America, the Fed's fund rate, the term structure of interest, inflation, uh, it could be NGDP targeting. So there's a wide range of targets that they could um, focus on. And even calculating these, you know, such as like average inflation targeting, well, how long are you taking the average? How quickly will you get back to the average if there's a deviation? Um, so the, the, there's a lot of gray area there. And also recently, the, the at least for the Federal Reserve, it transitioned from its primary target being the federal funds rate to interest on excess reserves with very little discussion about that. Um, so once again, lots it, it makes it really difficult when you actually don't know what the target is or the target could potentially be moving over time. The instruments themselves, so these are the, the, the tools that the central bank actually uses to implement monetary policy. Traditionally, it's been buying and selling uh, treasuries, the required reserve ratio, and uh, a penalty rate for when banks are forced to borrow from, from, from them when they can't get that um, overnight lending uh, to meet the reserve requirements um, for private institutions. But now central banks in the financial crisis, and especially now um, in COVID-19, have resorted to some unconventional monetary policy instruments, such as interest on excess reserves, direct lending, large-scale asset purchases, um, maturity exp uh, extensions. Um, so we've seen a wide range of different types of instruments employed, and there's oftentimes with little consideration. A lot of the tools employed during COVID-19 were not employed even in the financial crisis. And so we don't have a, a real good understanding of what the implications are, how they operate, where, you know, what their sweet spot is, um, or how they interact with other um, um, instruments that we have. And then the final technical problem is calibrating the model itself. So after you, a central bank intervenes, Let's put the dipstick into the economy and see how it's doing to, to judge our uh, how well we have done. Well, there's a wide range of metrics for trying to measure the economy. Central banks have used interest rates, labor market, um, uh, housing market. You know, Ben Bernanke uh, <laughs> said that he even used men's underwear sales and gold at times to try to measure um, the state of the economy. And even something like the labor market, there's a lot of different metrics, unemployment, the labor force participation, hiring rights, uh, uh, job opening uh, rates. So there's a lot of different metrics um, that could potentially be used to calibrate models. Lots of different ways to even measure GDP. Um, in fact, in the United States, um, there's two different uh, central banks issue conflicting GDP estimates. Um, but 
that's not the true knowledge problem. Those just those are just the technical difficulties that make um, conducting monetary policy extremely difficult. What we argue that makes central banking impossible is the same arguments that make central planning of economy impossible. And that is, is that as a fiat supplier of uh, currency, they have to adjust the supply of currency in response to changes in the demand for currency. And in a monopoly system, there is no feedback automatic adjustment mechanism like there would be in the market to automatically give uh, central bankers the knowledge of what the demand for money is and how it's changing and then the incentives for them to actually address it. Um, so basically, just to kind of restate that, I think in a clearer fashion, economists can come up with long-term estimates of what the demand for money is, but we commission central bankers specifically to mitigate short-run and medium-run fluctuations. That's the whole justification for discretionary central banking. And it's in the short and medium run that the demand for money can change in ways that we can't predict, especially during a crisis situation. And new, new technologies such as uh, NFTs and cryptocurrency, new ways that the demand for money can manifest itself can fundamentally affect that uh, demand for money. Uh, demographics, fiscal policy, regulatory policy, um, you know, a whole range of different uh, metrics can influence that demand for money in very unpredictable ways. And we argue that's the true knowledge problem that, um, that a central bank supplier uh, faces. And so they will always be oversupplying or undersupplying the currency and thus thereby creating monetary disequilibrium and therefore undermining the validity and power of the price system in a free enterprise system to, to encourage entrepreneurship and innovation and uh, the servicing consumers. And thinking further about the knowledge problem that we just discussed, do you think that in this specific area of monetary policy, there may be a certain sense of asymmetric information, given the very technical and complex nature of this policy area, as compared to you know, healthcare policy or fiscal policy, just something that you know, ordinary citizens and even perhaps elected officials you know, have a problem fully understanding? Could this perhaps give certain room for monetary policy makers specifically to engage in some level of unaccountability? Yeah, that, that's the, the primary justification for having essentially the epistocracy or high priest of central banking that we currently have. Um, that ordinary citizens don't understand this, even politicians, many politicians don't understand this. And even if they did, they wouldn't have the right incentives. So therefore we need to give these experts um, a lot of discretion and leeway um, in order to uh, tailor monetary policy to certain to the circumstances and thus do it in a way that would, um, um, you know, ex exceed what would happen if we did it more democratically. We reject this. You know, our rule by uh, experts has fundamentally failed. When we look at the, the historical literature comparing the Federal Reserve to institutions before that, um, it's very clear the Federal Reserve has not improved macroeconomic stability. It still led to the Great Depression, the financial crisis, um, and not just, not just allowed those to happen. We fundamentally argue with the literature that central banking actually caused, was the catalyst that caused and prolonged uh, both of those catastrophic events. Um, so rather than try to, to entrust um, unelected and uh, unaccountable experts to, to have discretion, we argue for 
creating those binding rules on monetary policy authorities so that we have generality and predictability in money. Um, that's far superior to allowing this discretion that so often has been used inappropriately throughout history. What then would you say to the argument that sometimes, you know, we need a level of discretion, especially when it comes to emergency situations, you know, we need policymakers to have this flexibility to engage in discretionary actions, including in monetary policy, or do you think there is totally no scope for discretion, perhaps, you know, it's a certain continuum, where do you draw the line here? Yeah, so that, that's, uh, we, we tackle that uh, direct on in one of our chapters. Um, we think that particularly during a time of crisis is precisely when you need rules the most. It's because during a time of crisis is when the knowledge problems are going to be the most severe. You have the fog of war, so to speak, and monetary experts, just like the regular citizen, don't know what's going on. A good example of this is COVID-19 right now. Um, there's all sorts of supply constraints going on, and it's really hard for these monetary authorities are really struggling with, should we uh, engage in easy or loose monetary policy right now? It's it, it, it's hard, um, and, and, I, and we argue unknowable. Um, and then, of course, incentive problems are also the most severe during the enduring crisis situations because especially politicians want to um, you know, use the crisis opportunity to advance um, you know, agendas that they have um, and, and to increase the scope and size of government. You also have special interest groups that are clamoring for um, you know, bailouts and policy that's going to, um, in particular, benefit them. So at the time of a crisis is when a, a rule-bound central bank would actually provide the most benefits and the most predictability. Uh, you, you need entrepreneurs in the economy to, to be able to predict what that, to, to reliably predict there's going to be sound money so that they can reallocate capital to help adjust the economy out of that recession, rather than adding monetary uncertainty on top of all of the other uncertainty that entrepreneurs face in trying to, to, to get out of a recession. Speaking about the use of discretion during emergency situations, you know, let's perhaps think a little bit about COVID-19 and how that may have really affected monetary policy and uh, the increased use of discretion. Uh, my understanding is that since last year, short-term interest rates, which were already very low in most advanced economies, were quickly cut around the world, reaching around zero in all advanced economies and even in some emerging market economies. Um, you know, how do you see, you know, uh, COVID-19 is having an impact on monetary policy? And do you think that, you know, it's, uh, it's different, you know, in terms of impacts compared to, you know, the Great uh, Recession of 2008? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So um, when we look at um, what happened with COVID-19 and the, the policies Im implemented by central banks around the world, uh, one of the, the most noticeable things is after the financial crisis, a lot of central banks like the Federal Reserve did never unwound their balance sheets. So they didn't have a lot of dry powder, so to speak, to actually engage traditional tools. Interest rates were really low. They had um, you know, large uh, asset balances on their portfolios. Um, th there wasn't much they could do in, in terms of traditional tools. And there were, of course, several advocates prior to that saying, hey, you know, every 10, 15 years, we can expect a recession. Nobody could have predicted a global pandemic, certainly. Uh, but we know, you know, every once in a while, there are, are recessions, and we should have been more prepared by creating a lean and mean central bank that didn't have such a large impact on the, the economy during a regular normal time, because that enabled the, the central bank to engage its traditional tools 
more effectively when a true recession occurred. Um, but after that, uh, so immediately, you know, pretty immediately, uh, central banks engaged all the traditional tools to the max. And then they started to resort to some of the unconventional uh, policies resorted to during the financial crisis and even invented new programs. And some of these programs I think are, are deep concern for those who care about a classical liberal society and robust political economy. And for, for instance, in the United States, the, the Federal Reserve implemented programs that um, bailed out state and local governments creating this potential moral hazard problem, very similar to the moral hazard problem that the European Union uh, faced with, uh, you know, Portugal, Italy, um, Spain, in terms of if you have a monetary union, but individual physical uh, sovereignty that provides the incentives for local level governments to, to engage in reckless fiscal policies and expect to be bailed out. And that's exactly what um, this type of system enables. There's also interventions in, you know, the Federal Reserve directly intervened in the bond market, which is unprecedented. There's no bank run problem in the bank in, 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 in the bond market. So there's no theoretical justification for a central bank actually bailing out the bond market. So that was um, pretty extraordinary. And it also opened the door to politicians being able to say, hey, if we're gonna intervene in the bond market and help out these corporations. Can't we legislate a, or can't we implement a $15 minimum wage? Can't we implement environmental policies? Those may be important objectives, but they should run through the proper legislative channels, not through the back door by the Federal Reserve owning uh, bonds and corporate, you know, controlling and bailing out bonds and thus um, uh, mandating those through the back door. Um, other policies I, th I think that are, are kind of notable are uh, the direct lending to Main Street businesses. Um, so traditionally, central banks around the world have refused, and this goes back to, to Walter, Walter Badgett, right? We're supposed to provide general liquidity, never actually pick winners and losers who's getting the, the, who's getting the money. And that's exactly what the, the Federal Reserve did, is they stepped into the economy and said, okay, we're going to identify certain businesses and give loans to them, rather than just providing general liquidity to the market and allowing the banks to, to make that using private criteria. So I, I think... And that's just a couple of the programs. I, I think there's a, a wide range of other programs as well that create potential fissures in the economy if they become conventional tools that the, the central bank employs every time there is a crisis. And that there, we have no reason to suspect they won't. Several of the tools used in the financial crisis that were just one-time things were brought back um, during COVID-19. Perhaps we can now discuss you know, the solutions that you've recommended in the book, particularly the constitutional solution inspired by the work of James Buchanan, as well as free banking. Let's start with the first and let's think about, you know, how has the, the ideas of Buchanan influence uh, your work here? And how feasible do you think this approach is? Yeah, so Buchanan started, James M. Buchanan, who um, I was actually undergrad at Middle Tennessee State University and then was a professor of mine at George Mason. Um, you know, he, he started the field of public choice, which first you know, examined the incentive problems in, in government. Mm -hmm. And part of his research also looked at monetary institutions. But the second field that he created was constitutional political economy as a solution to that first problem. Let's find ways to craft rules to govern our rule makers, to prevent them from engaging in discretionary um, activity that does, is not general and that uh, is, is in 
or is discriminatory. So he wanted to create a constitution that creates general and non-discriminatory rules. Um, so we apply that concept um, as he did to, to monetary institutions in arguing that one way to ensure generality and predictability in money and to move it out of the hands of politicians and special interest groups is to actually create a constitutional rule that provides protections, uh, constitutional protections to sound money. Um, there are problems with that, and that is that it, you know politicians can can ignore constitutional provisions as 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 they have done uh, occasionally in the past, and they can also change the constitution, but at least create, creates a, a barrier that makes it much harder to do that. Um, the more interesting idea, at least for myself, I won't speak for my co-authors, is the, the idea of free banking. And this was advanced by F.A. Hayek later on in his career. And it's the simple observation that um, in world history and even around the world today, there are some societies that allow private banks to issue currency in competition with one another. And what's really interesting about allowing the market to provide currency is you don't have the knowledge and incentive problems. And that is because if a bank is issuing currency and it's backed by gold or silver and they inflate that currency, so they issue too much. Well, if you're holding that currency, you're, like, you're realizing, hey, this is worth less now. I'm gonna take it back and, and redeem it for the gold and silver and then go grab a different currency to exchange with. Um, so the bank automatically starts losing gold and silver reserves and realizes, uh-oh, we've made a mistake. We can no longer float our currency and they're gonna um, be forced to, to bring back their, their currency levels down to the optimal uh, in accordance with um, monetary demand. Um, so they have both the knowledge and the incentives to, to actually provide the optimal amount of currency. And it, you don't have to read the tea leaves with monetary experts, just leave it up to the market to do that. It it's, sounds crazy and radical, and, uh, but there are legitimate scholars in this area studying this. And it, it, it's, we consider one of the, the, the more viable ideas that we advance for creating generality and predictability in money. How do you think the rise of cryptocurrency fits into this uh, solution of free banking that you just advocated? And I'm just also curious about where you stand on the debate between advocates of hard commodity money like gold and silver, and on the other hand, cryptocurrency. Mm. Yeah, so I'm fascinated by cryptocurrency, so I'm glad you, you asked. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of everything going on, and I love that there's competition competition out there. I do think that um, governments, uh, by threatening legislation, are hampering some developments in cryptocurrency and its, you know, its extension and its ability to become more of a commonly used medium of exchange. Um, you know, at least in the United States, um, the, the Federal Reserve and other government agencies are trying to find ways to regulate cryptocurrency in certain capacities that I think would undermine its, its potential. Um, I also think legal tender laws um, prohibit um, cryptocurrency from being fully what it should be. And what I mean by legal tender laws is when governments have a centralized monopoly supplier of currency, they make it illegal for anyone else to create a competing uh, private currency. Um, so if we just remove those laws and allowed competition to emerge, whether it be in the banking sector, banks issuing their own private currency, or in the crypto sector, um, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of just letting the market decide. I don't know which one, um, to get to your other question, which one is going to be superior, uh, privately issued 
uh, money backed by gold and silver or cryptocurrency, or maybe even privately issued currency backed by cryptocurrency, all sorts of um, innovations could be unleashed if we would simply allow entrepreneurs to, to work on solving that problem and creating a medium of exchange that people saw value in, um, rather than hampering those efforts simply so the government can control the, control the, the, the commanding heights of the economy through central banks. And lastly, to end off our discussion, I'd like to ask you a final question. Looking at current events today, you know, and the way that monetary policy has evolved recently, are you more optimistic or pessimistic about how, you know, this is going to turn out in the near future? So are you at the end an optimist or a pessimist? And also what would be your final takeaway message to our listeners today? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. It's, uh, it seems to be on the day. Some days I wake up very optimist. Some days I wake up uh, a pessimist. Um, it's really hard for me to see how going forward we can make radical changes to central banks around the world. There are entrenched bureaucracies, um, you know, a special interest group that benefits from the system. Uh, they have a lot of prestige and influence. Um, so it's really hard to see how, um, you know, especially some of the more radical um, solutions such as free bank banking would ever be um, implemented. However, you know, we did write the book, right? I, we took the time to write the book because we think, you know, if you could make the case that we could convince people that this is a, a really important area and that we should um, think creatively about finding institutional solutions to, to creating better monetary institutions, even if they aren't the, the ones that, that we kind of rest our hat on. Um, be, 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 yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm long term, I'm optimistic, I think, and that I think we can convince people and um, that it's becoming increasingly obvious that central banks are deviating from their, um, their original mission and, and taking on all sorts of additional responsibilities. And I think the no most noticeable that is catching on is climate change and inequality. Um, people are like raising their eyebrows like, even if those are important issues, and I think they are, they shouldn't be done by a central bank. Um, so to the extent that that happens, I think we can make a case con to constrain the, the Federal Reserve. I'm real big on the, the possibility of NGDP targeting um, as a rule that central banks should follow. And I think that would obviate the need for having such large bureaucracy, uh, such a large bureaucracy, because if you're following a, a standard rule that's very simply, very simple to follow, well, you don't need hundreds upon hundreds of staff economists to be trying to, to predict which way the economy is going. Um, so you can kind of unwind the Federal Reserve um, without actually bringing in the radical idea of free banking yet um, and get people used to the idea of, of, of a much smaller uh, central banking in, uh, footprint on the economy. Thank you very much, Professor Daniel Smith. Money and the Rule of Law, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you.